Well, open your Bible to Paul's letter to the Philippians tonight. Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to open the cover of this wonderful book that is filled with joy, and we're going to learn about the, the selfless Christian life. A lot of folks would say the theme of Philippians is joy, and joy clearly is, a, is part of the book. It, it mentions joy 16 times. But I actually think a better theme has to do with, with the selfless Christian life. And joy is the, is the product of, of living that way. And last Sunday, we went over some, some helpful background material, and we familiarized ourselves with the, with the letter structure. You, you probably know Philippians has four chapters. You probably didn't know that there were 104 verses, because I didn't know that until I looked. And as I said, Paul speaks of joy 16 times, and he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ 17 times. And there's an obvious connection. Jesus and joy go together. And we'll learn that joy comes when we, we follow our master's pattern and, and give our lives away in service to him. And the Apostle Paul, after planting this church on his second missionary journey, of course, God's the ultimate church planner, but he uses men. Paul visited Philippi on his, on his third journey, likely twice. And then he writes this letter from Rome upon receiving their gift, their financial gift, and also a helper that the, the church sends to the uh, Apostle Paul. We said this letter is partially a thank you it's an update on his circumstances in Rome. The Philippians clearly wanted to know what was going on in their the dear apostle's life. It was an exhortation toward unity. They, the, Paul would have had the Philippians sing that, that last song that, that we just sung together. And then finally, it's a warning about false teachers. I said the, the theme is the selfless Christian life that, that brings true joy. True joy comes from the selfless Christian life. Now, don't be overwhelmed by what I'm getting ready to, to show you, but, but, but just to let you know, we're not making this up as we, we go along. This letter can be outlined in nine parts. Don't, don't get overwhelmed that you can't get this down. You'll see that again. This is what we're going to cover tonight. God's, or Paul's gracious greeting in verses 1 and 2. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, you find Paul's thankful prayer. And then in 12 through 26, he tells about his challenging circumstances. There are men that are coming against him. He's in prison. And then he gives some Christ-like exhortations in the end of chapter 1 and through chapter 2. This is, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did, the, the, the passage where he emptied himself, if, as some would call it. I think it's a bad way of saying it. Paul's faithful companions... He, talks about some companions he has in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, and then Paul's serious warnings through chapter 3, 1 through 4, 1, and then Paul's joyful instructions, his thankful praise, and then his friendly farewell at the end of the book, four chapters. Again, as I said, if you don't get that down, you'll... You'll see it again, and we'll actually be walking through it verse by verse, but this is really the roadmap that we're going to be following in the book of, 
in the book of Philippians. Nothing fancy on my part, exactly as God lays it out, which is all we're, we're concerned about. And so, as I said, tonight we're going to be looking at Paul's gracious greeting, and we're only going to be covering two verses, but we're going to read the first 11. So let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, or who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, uh, about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness." How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray that that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of And praise of God. As I said, we're only going to be looking at the first two verses. And you might think of it like the cover of a book. It's been said that you can't judge a book by its cover, but the the dust jacket that the Apostle Paul puts on this letter flies in the face of of that maxim. You can judge a book by, by this cover. In his introduction, Paul repeats the name of Christ three times. And he then publicizes, by doing that, he publicizes the centerpiece of his, of his letter. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. The Philippians are holy people in Christ Jesus. And that grace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins his letter by telling us that that Jesus is the epicenter of the, the Christian's life. And, and because of that, it's the, it's the centerpiece of, of this letter. He's the centerpiece of this letter. And, and Paul, in this introduction, this greeting, he gives three gracious greetings to the epistle of, of joy. should be a, an S there on, on greetings. He gives a a greeting from Christ's servants. It's him and Timothy in verse 1. He gives a greeting to Christ's saints. That's the the church at at Philippi and the elders and the deacons. And then he gives a greeting of Christian salutation, something that all Christians are able to say because of the the work of of Christ. So you have grace and... And greeting here. Let's look at the first one, how the Apostle Paul starts. He starts with a greeting. He says he's sending a greeting from Christ's servants. And he identifies 
their name and also their, their titles. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. There's their names and there's their title. Their title is bondservants of, of Christ Jesus. Now, now, just like if you would, would go to Microsoft Word and, and, and you would look for a template, there are plenty of templates on there. There's, there's a template for a letter that's on there. Just like there's a template on Microsoft Word, there, there were also templates in Paul's days. There, was, there were common greetings. And Paul follows that, that format here as he opens this, this, this letter. We, we would probably start a letter today that, that, was, that was impersonal or, or we didn't know the individuals to whom it may concern. And then we'd write the letter, whatever we might, we might want to say. If it's somebody that, that we, we knew well... We'd probably be, we'd be very less formal. We might say something like, uh, dearest Mary, or, or some other way to, to communicate that we knew the individuals and that there was affection that, that we have from them. They were known. Well, Paul knows this church very well. I mean, you can hear that. I mean, did you hear the, how kindly and affectionate Paul talks about these individuals? It's reciprocated. I mean, the reason he's writing the letters is because they sent him money. And because they, they sent him uh, uh, someone to care for him while he is in prison. The Philippians had great affection for Paul. And Paul had, had, had great affection for, for them. And so this, Paul begins to, with a common form but a very personal tone. In fact, this entire letter is written in first person singular. It's from Paul... To the Philippians. Now, now we get the benefit of reading it, and we also know it's 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 Holy Scripture, so it's inspired by the Holy Spirit for for all of us. But when the Apostle Paul wrote it, what did the original author mean or intend to the to the original hearer? The Apostle Paul had a very wrote a very affectionate letter, very theological letter, very important letter, but a very affectionate letter from this apostle that loved this church. They were his friends, and Paul communicates that. Now, think about how you might start a letter to a, a, a group of dear brothers and sisters that, that, let's say you served with multiple times. Let's say you went with David and Linda or Woody to, to China every summer, four summers in a row, and you served in the same place with the same group of people and you hadn't seen him for a long time. Think about how you would write a letter to those to those individuals. I mean, it wouldn't be the same way that you would do that to somebody that you, that you didn't know. You would form a bond with them. You would be serving the Lord with them there. And so that's the way the Apostle Paul writes this this letter. You would you would write a letter that would be very personal and heartfelt. And the deeper the bond, the greater the affection. And so that's how Paul starts this letter. Now, we don't know for sure. Notice it says Paul and Timothy. Paul is writing this letter. I, Paul, am writing to you Philippians, but he includes Timothy in here. Best of we can know, Timothy doesn't write any of this letter. I mean, the, Timothy's part of what's going on, but Paul includes Timothy here in the, in the greeting. It's possible he does that because Timothy's his secretary. Paul's dictating the, uh, the letter. We don't know for sure. But clearly, Timothy was one of Paul's faithful companions, wasn't he? 
Just as Paul loves this church, Timothy shares his affections. And Paul tells the church that. I mean, we, we affect one another. Our, our passions, good or bad, spill over on each other. You hang around somebody very long, you're going to find out what they're passionate about. And whatever they're passionate about, it, it, it can spill over on, on you. That, that's why you, you better be sure that you have godly friends. They can, your friends can bring you down or they can, they can lift you up. And, and Timothy clearly, clearly picked up some of the affection that the apostle had for this, this church. Timothy is included in six of the Apostle Paul's letters. So when I say he was a faithful companion, there is ample evidence of that. Timothy's included in 2 Corinthians, here in Philippians. He's included in Colossians. He's included in Philemon. He's included in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. That's a lot. And of course, then, Timothy was a recipient of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he received letters specifically to him applicable to the church at Ephesus, but directly from the apostle to Timothy. I would say no other person in Paul's ministry meant more or was dearer to the great apostle than, than Timothy. And I think that you can know that because he mentions him over and over. He writes these two letters, but, but I think here's one of the keys. You can know how much Timothy meant to Paul because the last letter that Paul ever wrote that we have in the Bible is to his beloved disciple. Now, think about that. I mean, could Paul have written other letters that we don't know about? Yeah, it's possible. But we know for sure the last one recorded in the Bible before the Apostle Paul was taken to heaven, was martyred for, for his faith, was to Timothy. He says some very precious things, and they're things that we hold hold. hold Hold in our hearts. Now think about this. If you had one letter to write, was the last letter that you would ever write, who would you write to? It'd be a special person, wouldn't it? Maybe it would be it would be somebody that you'd want to write a wrong with. You, you want to confess something. That's possible because that would mean a, a lot to, to you. But I would say if that wasn't the case, if you were going to write to a person, that person would be very special to you. And I think the point that I'm trying to make is that when Christians serve together, like Paul and Timothy, they form, they form a bond. There are two bonds that are not easily broken. The bond between a disciple and a disciplee, or a father in the faith. The bond that's created between the person that leads you to the Lord or, or leads you in the Lord. That, that bond is not easily broken. And then the second is the bond between a shepherd and a flock. And I think you can see both of these right there in the very first verse, first two verses of, of Philippians. There is no bond like the one created between brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be closer to another Christian than, than you are to your own family. Some of you are. But when that bond involves growth and service, they're, they're even stronger. One of the reasons that people don't get plugged into a church or feel distant from a church is because, because they don't serve somewhere. They, they, they don't spend time with other brothers and sisters. If you feel distant or your heart growing, growing distance, look at how much time you're spending with, with the people of God and the, and the family of God. 
And then, and then not only look how much time, but, but, but look at what you're pouring out together. I can remember a time when, when I was a young Christian, whenever I was at, at, at Red House, our Sunday school class, um, built a prayer bench, uh, a place for Theta. You've heard me talk about Theta Lewis a lot. And there was a place, there was a, there was a tree in the, in the backyard of the, of the church. There was about 26 acres of the church, and most of it was a hillside. But there was, there was a little field out back, and there was a spring that was there, and there was a tree that was right over top of the spring. And so the spring came out, and it was a pretty little area, and Theta liked to go there and pray. And as our Sunday school class, we, we, we dug the hole out and, and poured some concrete in there and made a place for the spring to come out so she could listen to the water and she could sit there and pray after she was diagnosed with, with cancer. And she would go there and, and, and read her Bible. And we put a little marker there of, of, her, favorite, of her favorite passage. And, and I can remember being so excited about doing that project as a Sunday school class and circumstances would have it, when the Sunday school class started that project, uh, Tracy and I were not available. I don't remember exactly what it was. I just remember that the first work day that they had, everybody went there and everybody uh, got dirty and it was hot and hard. And, and I can remember coming to Sunday school class the next Sunday. They're all talking about, about this experience. And I remember thinking like an outsider. And, and that was because I didn't participate in the service. And then, of course, the next, the next Saturday we, we dove in. The point I'm making is the more that you serve together and, and the more difficult the labor, the more you pour yourselves out together, the deeper the bond. You go places and you're instantly connected to other believers because of Christ. There's a bond between you and believers because of service. There's a, there's a deeper bond, though, between the person that led you to the Lord or took you by the hand and discipled you. Whoever that person is, it, it is likely welded to your heart, and that bond remains. Maybe it's the pastor that you first sat under whenever, whenever God really started working in, in your life. That bond stands the, the test of persecution and distance and, and time. That's the kind of relationship that Paul had with Timothy and Timothy had with, with Paul. Paul called Timothy my true son in the faith in 1 Timothy. And that's what it feels like. It's like the bond between a father and a son. That's the first bond. The bond between a disciple and a, a discipler. The second bond that you can see here that's not easily broken is the bond between a shepherd and the flock. Here it's an apostle and a church. It's the same thing. There is a strong attachment to the one who feeds you God's Word. Now, the Bible is the voice of God. You want to hear God speak? Don't listen for still small voices. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible preach. That's how God speaks. This is His voice. That's why you have to, well, you have to say what the Bible says and, and don't add to it or, or take away from it. The Bible is the voice of God, but did you know that God's voice has an accent? And in this place, it's the West Virginia accent, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I can still hear the cadence of Joe Hutchinson preach. I can hear it in my head. I can hear it in my heart. I, I, can, I can see him smacking his hand and, and getting excited about things. 
I can remember his daughter listening to me preach probably 10 years after I left the church. And, and she said, I can hear my father whenever you preach. There's just something that's there. It sticks with you. There's a strong attachment to the one who feeds you the Word of God. There's, there's an equal attachment between the pastor and, and the flock. There's an equal attachment for those that you lay down your life for. And Timothy is, is mentioned in this greeting because Paul says he hopes to, to send Timothy to, to the church soon because Paul wants to know about their condition, because the, the, the shepherd wants to know about the flock. And he wants to get a report. He want, the church wants to know about the apostles, so he's going to send Timothy so, so Timothy can give a further uh, update about Paul's life. But Paul also hopes Timothy's going to come back and tell him about the church because of that, that bond. One of the things that I find very difficult whenever I go away, on a longer period of time, on a, on a short-term mission trip, something that's longer than, than a few days... One of the things that's difficult is, is the access, when, when access is restricted, when, when I don't know how you all are. Um, I get regular reports while I'm away. I get, I get the, the prayer lists while I'm away. One of the last things that I do before I, before I leave, any of the pastors here for that matter, is we tell the other elders uh, any needs that you have and make sure that somebody's following up on those needs. We don't just skip town and hope it, hope it all works out. It will... And everything's, everything's in place whenever we get back. One of the first things that I do whenever I get back is get a report on how you all are. Paul felt the same way. And he couldn't wait to send Timothy to find out how the church was doing. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul talked about the Corinthians? He longed to know how it was going with them. This letter is to inform them of how Paul was doing. And Paul just doesn't list the, the names of, of the writers, of, of, of the, the one that shows us the bond between, between the, the one who leads you to the Lord and the one who follows, and between the shepherd and, and the flock. But, but Paul also gives a unique title here. Look at what else he says in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants, of Christ Jesus. He gives his title and Timothy's title, and that title is Slave. John MacArthur wrote a book all about this, this word. Highly recommend it to you. It's excellent. This word here is that word. It's, it's, it's doulos, which means slave. It's not um, the word for, for servant. It's different. Most people pride themselves on their, on their titles, don't they? Some people put it on their, their business cards, um, on their doors, whatever it is. You met that person who, who wants to list all of their initials after their name to make sure that you know all of the different educational accomplishments that, that they've had. Most people pride themselves on their titles. And some people, for sometimes that's helpful. To identify somebody's rank or position, if you're in the military, it's vital to know who can give orders and who must take them. I mean, they display the rank for that, for that specific purpose. It's important. That's not for pride. That, that's, that's purposeful. Some use titles, though, for self-glorification. 
I can remember a few years ago, uh, the Democrat Senator Barbara Boxer from California, there was, a, there was a little viral video that went around where she demanded a brigadier general call her senator and not ma'am. He was calling her ma'am, which was the term of respect. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful. That's what he was taught to do. And she got all bent out of shape. And said, I worked hard for that title, and I want you to, to use it. I want you to call me Senator. And she forgot she was granted that title by her constituents, didn't she? She was the servant of those who elected her, not master. Well, the title that Paul gives himself is slave of Jesus Christ. What title would you give yourself? Well, here's a good one. It's not even a servant. He says he's a slave of Jesus Christ. A servant, which is different from a slave. A servant in Roman society would be like an employee. They, they can move around to, to, to other jobs if they desire. But a bond slave is very different. Now, this is interesting. Because if, if you've ever read or even paid attention to the other greetings that the Apostle Paul uses. Remember I told you like there's a word document, standard greeting? The standard greeting that Paul typically uses is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. It's interesting because it's a departure from, other, from Paul's other letters. Paul uses it, usually introduces himself as an apostle. He was one sent by Christ to represent him. But here he makes no reference to that. He simply says both he and Timothy were fellow slaves. They're slaves together. And when you hear the term slave, you probably think of, of slavery. You hear that term thrown around a lot. But, but that's, that's not the, the same concept. In Roman society, slaves were not the same as, as we, often, we often think about. Slaves sometimes did lowly work. Sometimes they were mistreated, surely, in, in Roman times. But other times they had great responsibility. A doctor could be a slave. So could a schoolmaster. So could a cook. So could somebody who did menial labor. The difference between a slave and in the rest of society was not their skill or their education or their responsibility, but their, but their freedom. Slaves were bound to their masters, and, 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 and they, they oftentimes owed a debt and... And they, they became a slave to, to pay off that debt. They were not autonomous, but they were completely subject to their master and his well-being because of the debt that they owed. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul means here. Paul says he and Timothy had a debt that they could never repay Christ. And he had become their master. And they were his slave. They subordinated all of their own rights to him because of, of the debt that, that they owed. And so should you. You, as the Bible says, were bought with a price. You have no rights as a Christian. And when Jesus saved you, he paid a sin debt that you could never pay. And because of that, he invites you to become part of his, his household. You shouldn't make... Uh, you shouldn't mistake your, your condition. 
you are already a slave. Don't think that you're a free man running around out here doing whatever you want to do. You already are a slave. The question that you have to answer is, do you want a kind master or an evil one? Paul says in Romans that you're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. There's nobody in between. You're either enslaved to your sin nature and you're of your father the devil, the Bible says, or you're a slave of righteousness. You're a, you're a slave of, uh, uh, of God. And it's been said the first duty of every soul is to, is to find its master. And the gospel invites you to change masters. <laughs> And Paul says, I have a good master. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed to call him master. And I'm not ashamed to take the, the moniker of slave. I'm his slave. And so is Timothy. Paul considered his position as slave of Christ to be one of the highest value, even greater than an apostle. And in this very personal letter, you see that. It's the position that, that, that modeled the Lord himself being a slave who served the, the Father's will even to the point of death and, and an inglorious death on the cross. G. Walter Hansen said Paul's reasoning was simple while well, he took this title. If Christ is Lord, then we are His slaves. And to be called slaves of the Lord was a mark of distinction in the history of God's people. Did you know that Moses was called a servant of the Lord? Same title. You know, Joshua was called a servant of the Lord. Did you know David was called a servant of the Lord? It's one of the highest honors that God can bestow. It's pretty good company. It's also one of the keys to joy. Another reason that you might struggle with, with joy is is you haven't relinquished your rights yet. When you freely relinquish your rights, when you settle into the position that you have, that Christ is your master, and it doesn't matter what you do. You don't have any agenda, only His. Your only goal is to be pleasing to the Lord. If you can settle into that position, you will find joy that you never experience any other way. But sometimes it's a, it's a hard climb getting there, isn't it? I mean, sometimes God has to pry our fingers open to turn loose of things, doesn't He? And the minute that we open our hand and the Lord begins to take it, we, we, we grab it back, don't we? We want our way, our agenda, our will. And yet joy comes when you surrender, when you submit to the position that He's the master and you're the slave. The most joyful Christian in the world is one who has rested from trying to establish his own rights and he accepts the, the Lord's yoke. What did Jesus say about his yoke? It's easy, isn't it? His burden is light. It's a yoke. He's the master. You don't tell God what to do. <laughs> but he's a kind master. One of the most miserable individuals in the world is someone who keeps fighting to keep their rights. And the moment that you surrender your life and take up God's, you'll find peace. And that brings us to the, to the second part of this, of this greeting. There's a greeting to Christ's 
saints. And in that greeting, Paul identifies the recipients. He localizes the body. And he distinguishes the parts of the church. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Again, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's part one. Here's part two. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the two that I'm getting ready to mention. They're part of the body, including the overseers and deacons. Now, Paul sends this letter to all the saints. He sends this letter not to elected few. He identifies the recipients. Right? He says this letter is coming from Paul, and Timothy's with me, and we are bond slaves of the Lord, but I'm writing to the Philippians, to all the saints there in in Christ Jesus. This letter is not to a selected few in the church, but to all the saints. And he notes that these are the saints who are living. They're alive because they're in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's why they're saints. Or why they're holy. Why they're set apart. Because they're in Him. It gives you your identity. Being in Christ gives you your identity. Being in Christ is, is, one of, is, is a common theme of Paul's in the New Testament because it's one of the most blessed truths there is. Let me remind you. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Listen to this. You know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Isn't that a blessed truth? It comes because you're in Christ. You're a new creation. How about Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have no condemnation. You're a new creation and you have no condemnation all because you're in Jesus Christ. How about 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. Not outside of Christ, but in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you don't have the righteousness of God. But in Christ, the righteousness of God has been credited to your account, even though you are unrighteous. Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Colossians 2.7, we're rooted and built up in Him. Our growth is in Him and established in, in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You know this one, Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship created... In Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, I could go on. The New Testament's full of it. Being in Christ is the ground of our assurance, and it's our identity. It identifies us as God's people. There are those in Christ, there are those outside of Christ. Just like there were, there were God's people in the Old Testament times, God's people in New Testament times, are those who are in Him, whether they're Jew or Gentile. This word saint, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, this word saint comes, comes from the word that means holy. To be holy, and 
in one sense means to be to be set apart, like like the holy utensils for for the temple. They were they were set apart for specific use. They were set apart from common use. We would say from the world and, and set apart unto God for God's purposes. And here, Paul says that all the saints are set apart for God's special purposes, and they're set apart in Christ Jesus. And that gives you your identity. We often think when we hear the word saint, they're sinners and they're saints. We always often think like that. That has something to do with the record of a person's life. You're a saint. Isn't she a saint for what she did? As if that has something to do with their, with their record. We often think of a saint as a special class of people who are holier than everyone else. Like Catholicism, you can see that there. A Catholic that has lived an extraordinary life can reach sainthood by papal decree. But God says the only one who has ever lived an extraordinary life was Jesus Christ. And He laid down that life so all believers would be saints in Him. But Paul even called some people that you wouldn't think were saints, saints. Can you think of a church that the Apostle Paul also called saints? I mean, you, look, you read the book of Philippians, you say, these are pretty good folks. You ever read the book of Corinthians? You don't walk away reading that saying, those are some pretty good folks. <laughs> you walk away from that saying, that's me right there, and that's me right there. That's what you should be thinking. And yet Paul calls them saints. Why? Because even the Corinthians were in him. Such were some of you. Your lives were marked by all these horrible, sinful things, but you've been washed. You've been placed in Christ. That ought to encourage you. All believers are saints, not because we are righteous, but because we are, we are in the Lord. His righteousness was imputed to us, and because of that, we are God's people. But notice... The Philippians are not only in Christ Jesus, they're not only saints in Christ Jesus, which designates them as God's people, but they're God's people at Philippi, which localizes the gathering there. You see that? To all, I'm writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, a local body. It localizes the gathering that's there. Now, when we do a new member class that, we were coming up, I talk about four distinctives that lay the foundation for our philosophy of ministry. All the things that we do, our practices, are tied back to, to what we believe, doctrine. And then obviously that comes from an authority, and our sole authority is the Bible. The Word of God is our authority. And from the Word of God... It tells us what to think and what to do, what God declares, and then from that we, we derive our practices. Have you ever heard the term, change the, the method, not the message? That's nonsense. The method is tied to the message. Now, I don't mean that you've got to look like that, you know, that, that, that you were, you're still living in 1970s and, and don't use technology and those kind of things. But your methodology is tied to your theology, and your theology comes from the Scriptures for a Christian. So I go over that. 
talk about that. And I say the distinctives that, that are important to us are, is the sufficiency of Scripture. The reason I preach the way that I do, the reason Sunday school teachers strive to simply explain what the text of Scripture says and then apply it is because we believe that the Bible is authoritative and it's sufficient. You don't, you don't need my opinions. You need God's declaration. That's what we all need. You see how that theology turns into practice? So we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of the gospel. You don't need gimmicks or anything else. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. You proclaim the gospel. You press the gospel on someone's, on someone's conscience. And the Lord's the one that opens up. The power is not in you as the, as the person who knows how to pull their heartstrings. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Methodology, theology, the lordship of Christ. Jesus is not just your get-out-of-hell-free card. The apostles proclaimed Jesus as Christ, He's Savior, but also Lord. He's God. So you don't get to come to Christ and get all the benefits of heaven and not submit to Him. That's antithetical to the Bible. But then finally, the fourth one that I list is the centrality of the local church. We believe that the church, because Scripture teaches, is the center of the Christian life. It's the center of everything. It's God's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through Z. If God is going to do something in the world, it's going to come through and connect to His church. And Paul affirms that right here. Here's the centrality of the local church. To the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And while the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all believers who ever lived, will live, and who are located all over the world, all of the letters of the Bible, instructions of the Bible, are written to local assemblies. God's saints are global in scope. I mean, there's believers all over the world. We're not the only believers in the world. But it's localized in practice. In every church epistle that Paul wrote was to a local assembly even the ones that were circulated. They're instructions to a group of saints at a specific place. It typically mentions the leaders of that. God expects, expects His saints to gather in one place to be fed, to be cared for, to serve, so that they can be shepherded and identified. I mean, one of the reasons that, that God's plan is this way is, is so you can grow and so you can be identified. You can just kind of float around out there like a dust ball, like a Christian dust ball, not connected to anything, and you have no accountability. And so you just go from place to place. That's not God's plan. You're connected to a, a local assembly, a group of people at Philippi. Well, we'll hear in this case at, at Timberlake. And you're identified with a local assembly. Not multiple assemblies, one. Because... You're, you're sharing your spiritual gifts in that place. You're, you're shepherded in that place. That people are held accountable for your souls in a, in a specific place. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we have spiritual gifts for one another. The fruit of the Spirit can't be isolated in, uh, can't be exhibited in isolation. Things like kindness and love are pretty uh, tough to, to manifest in, in isolation. Look in the mirror, oh, I love myself. You love other people, don't you? 
I feel really warm, fuzzy feelings for all the Christians around the world. Is that what biblical love is? Biblical love is, is laying your life down for the person that's right beside you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We attend services, not only for ourselves, but for one another. Let us consider one another to provoke one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You have to assemble together, and you assemble in a local place. And when you do, you provoke one another. Shepherds are accountable for specific sheep, and sheep are disciplined by a specific body. Think about how crazy it would be for me to stand before the beam of seat of Christ, or, or Larry Brody to stand before the beam of seat of Christ and to be held accountable for a member at Thomas Road Baptist Church. That's crazy. Thomas Road's responsible for a member at Thomas Road Baptist Church. But we're going to be held accountable for the members of Timberlake Baptist Church. Now think of how crazy it is to flit and flop around to different churches and different shepherds. It's not good for your soul. What a privilege it is to be part of the body of Christ that's localized And that local body has been structured. Notice what else he says. To all the saints, not a specific group, but all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at a a local place, including part of this local body, part of the congregation, includes overseers and deacons. He distinguishes parts of the body. Paul not only localizes the body, he distinguishes the parts or the structure of the body. Now, if you want a, a full-blown treatment of this, I would suggest to you the, the Anatomy of the Church series. Pull that up on the website and listen to it. We did it this past summer in preparation for our, for our Constitution update. But Paul summarizes that whole series right here in one verse. He says the church is, is elder-led, deacon-served, and congregational in nature. It's right here. The church body is distinct, and as part of it, God has set apart overseers to lead and deacons to serve, including overseers and deacons. And if you break the three parts of this passage down, you get the three major features of our church anatomy series. They're the visible leaders in the church. They're the overseers, sometimes called elders, sometimes called overseers, sometimes called pastors in the Bible. All three are the same. You have the exemplary servers. We're all called to serve, but deacons are the, are the servers that are set apart to be model servers. They model for us service. They go above and beyond. And then there's the maturing ministers. There's the congregation. It's you. You're to be equipped to do the work of the, of the ministry. And the deacons are, are part of that, that serving process, and, and the overseers are part of that of that equipping. And God uniquely uses those parts to govern His church, to build His church, and each play a role. Play a role. Now, I want you to notice, because all of that's probably old hat for you, but here's something that you may not have paid attention to. I want you to notice that all three of these groups are plural. Notice this. To all the saints, plural, that's more than one, including the overseers, the elders, that's more than one, and also deacons, that's more than one, all in one local church in Philippi that was planted just a few years earlier, not not long ago, within the last ten years. 
And we can learn much from that, but the most, at the most basic level, God did not intend any of these three parts to operate without each other. He didn't part, uh, intend for the, for the deacons to operate without overseers, and overseers to operate without the congregation, and the congregation to operate without all of them. They all work together. I mean, you can clearly see that from this verse. And he also did not intend one man alone to run the church. I think that's what this clearly says. Elders or overseers or pastors are all the same position, and they're always spoken of as a group, plural, in the Bible. And all of those men meet the highest qualifications of 1 Timothy and Titus. Acts 20.17, Titus 1.5 shows an overseer is just another term for a pastor or elder. Now, not all of those men, not all of those elders have the same skill or experience. One may be set apart as a lead because of those gifts or because of the time that he could give. There are those that we set apart unto the gospel ministry, vocational ministers. That's what I do. You receive your, your remuneration from the body so that you might be freed up to, to minister to the body. Somebody like that could be set apart as, as a lead. But the church of Jesus Christ is, is led by a plurality of men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, who are subject to the Lord and who are part of the body. And the congregation governs its own affairs. This congregation, the Philippian congregation, is not subjected to any outside ecclesiology or, or authority. And with all of that in the introduction, Paul now lands the plane here and gives us his greeting of grace. If you would, at verse 2. There's a greeting of Christian salutation. Not just Paul's salutation, but Christian salute. And he identifies grace's gift and peace's source. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a Christian salutation. Any Christian can say that to any other Christian. John MacArthur said, The saving, eternal grace that is granted to penitent, believing sinners is a supreme, divine gift and everlasting peace is its greatest blessing. Grace is a supreme, divine gift and everlasting peace is its greatest blessing. And the source of both is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a gift from God, and peace comes from the Father and the Son, and it's a result of grace. Grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you ever receive uh, received a letter or an email from a very sincere Jewish person, almost always... Somewhere in that letter, typically in the beginning, it's going to have shalom, meaning peace. I just got a letter last week from Maggie, Boaz's wife, and she began the letter, shalom, Brian. That's part of a common Jewish greeting, which means peace. A common Greek greeting, even for non-Christians, in Paul's day was, was, was the Greek word for Greece, uh, Greek word for grace. Say that fast three times, right? The Greek greeting. 
was grace, which simply meant greetings to you. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, Paul merges these two things together to express what God in Christ has done for us. Walter Hansen said, Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unattracted, saving work in Christ. And that work brings people into peace or harmonious relationship with God and with others. And both of those come from God, who is known as the Father and the Son, two distinct persons. And they're the source. Now, if you're a believer, you know that you have both grace and peace. You experience them. But because you are a sinner, Paul knows that we need reminded of it more than once. The common definition that you hear for grace is what? Unmerited favor, right? That's redundant, isn't it? Okay, God's riches at Christ's expense. The common one that I hear is unmerited favor. That, that's redundant. I mean, grace is, is unmerited, for sure. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary to Philippians, said, we have to emphasize that, that grace is unmerited, because man always imagines that God loved him for what he is intrinsically. Or to say it another way, God loves me because of something in me, and that's false. The Bible says just the opposite. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing in us that attracted God's love. God didn't love you because what He saw you would do, uh, would do somewhere down the road, what you did do in the past or any other reason. It was not the merit in you that drew God to you, but His free choice of grace that drew you to Him. We love Him because why? He first loved us. And He loved us, Paul says, while we were in sin. While there was nothing unlovable about us. So you remember that next time that, that you think about loving somebody else. When the Bible says, love your, love your neighbor. Don't start loving that neighbor or think about loving that neighbor whenever they become lovely because they're never going to become lovely. That's not Christian love. You love them in their condition because you choose to love them because that's the example that Christ has given you, and that's what's in your heart. And that grace has brought the blessing of peace, grace and peace. Now, there's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God, but they're connected. Peace with God, and then the peace of God that I have, and the peace of God that we have one with another. But they come from the same source. He tells us here, it's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Through Christ. There's no other way that you can have peace with God. And you don't have peace with God apart from Christ. And since the fall, you've been at war with God, either actively or passively. You say, I'm not at war with God. God's God. You've been at war, the Bible says, since birth, passively. Because there's the sin of commission 
God says, don't do this, and you do it, and then there's the sin of omission. You haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that, that's passive enmity. You're at war in your heart. Since the fall, that's been the case. Our hearts, minds, and, and wills are an enmity with God. That's why we experience so much misery and turmoil that Ecclesiastes has been teaching us about. Without God, there is no peace, vertically or horizontally. But before we, we can have the peace of God, our souls have to be granted peace with God through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we're no longer enemies but made friends. And God's removed the barrier between His holiness and our sin on the cross. And by His grace, He has granted us peace, peace with Him. And those who have peace with Him have fellowship one with another and have peace with each other. Peace in your heart. And that's the salutation of every Christian. Grace and peace from the Father and the Son. Do you have peace? Do you have the peace of God? Do you have the peace that passes all understanding? Do you have peace that's unshakable in circumstances? If you don't have the peace of God, it could be because you don't have peace with God. And you're not going to have peace with God unless you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Faith in Him. Faith in what He did on the cross. Faith in His worth. In His worth. In His worth. In His righteousness. So by faith alone, you can be connected to to His righteousness, the credit of of His account. And then in faith, you, you can be placed in Him. And in Him, then you are saint, you're set apart, you're, you're one of God's children, you're one of God's own, and nothing, nothing can ever change that. And that is a blessed truth. And that makes you part of God's family and part of God's visible family that you're part of here tonight that has both overseers and deacons. What a wonderful introduction. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Three gracious greetings to the epistle of joy. A greeting from Christ's servants, a greeting to Christ's saints, and a greeting of Christian salutation. Do you have peace? Do you have peace with God? I'm going to pray, and after the service is, is over, there's something troubling your soul. If you're outside of the kingdom, you don't know. Don't leave here. I'll talk to you be happy to, to walk you through. Maybe you already know. Maybe you don't need anybody to talk to you. You just need to repent. You just need to believe. You need to call out to the Lord. You can do that tonight as well. Father, we love you. We thank you that you first loved us even though we were unlovely. We thank you for your word, how clear. Thank you that you have done everything that is necessary and you offer the benefits of Christ to, to the whole world, to anyone who will repent and believe. And through that, we can have peace with you. We love you. We thank you for that great grace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.